pray again. Ah, Father, truth is yours, and it's the truth you use to inform us, to guide us, to change us. Good? Sorry. And, uh, Lord, we depend on you. And just ask that by your spirit you'd help me to say things clearly as you mean me to. And, Lord, the things that you want us to apply, show us what that looks like for each one of us. Help us not to just come here or sit in our own living rooms on a morning and hear or read your word, Lord, but help us to be doers of it. Might you take pleasure in us, Lord, because we hear the truth and we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Is anyone parking far and sitting close this morning? Any hand? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? This is a test. This is a test. Okay, there's a few. You know, if you say something, if it was three weeks ago, it's like, does it still, does anyone remember what you said last week, the week before, or yesterday? Does anyone care sometimes might be more to the, to the question. You know, we are approaching Resurrection Sunday, and if you look at the liturgical year, and this isn't something that we really practice as a church, but you think of uh, Palm Sunday coming up, and Matthew 22 is a text that follows Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you remember it's a, it's a stunning passage because the king comes to his city and the, the crowds applaud him and they welcome him in and it's a real highlight there, at least momentarily. After Jesus has come in and during that week, disciples, followers of the Herodians and the Pharisees are still trying to get him. They're trying to trip him up and they want to we would say in political terms, alienate him from his base or at least part of it. So, they come up with a question that they're sure, we're going to ask him this question, we've got him in a corner, no matter what Jesus says, he's going to lose part of his audience, part of his followers. So the question is this, Jesus, we know that you speak the truth, you're a teacher from God, we can count on your answer, so is it lawful for us as Jews to pay tribute, tax to Caesar? Of course, their thinking went like this. If Jesus says, yes, it's lawful and you should pay taxes, Jews pay taxes to Rome, he's going to alienate the Jews because they don't want to pay taxes to Rome. On the other hand, if he says, no, it's not lawful, you shouldn't pay taxes, then they'll take that charge to the Romans and say, this guy's preaching sedition. He's telling people not to pay your tax. So, of course, Jesus thwarts it by saying, would you give me a coin that's used to pay that tax? You couldn't pay this tax with just any coin. It had to be the piece of coinage that had Tiberius Caesar's image on it. And his claim, by the way, to divinity. That was the coin you had to use. So Jesus says, show me the coin. Caesar's image is on it. And he famously says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Now, that thwarted his opposition. They didn't get what they wanted. There's some dispute about what Jesus actually meant, and I'm not going to deal with that this morning. This is sort of a jumping off point for us. But if we say today to any one of us, uh, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, it's sort of shorthand, it's idiomatic for you've got to pay your taxes, you've got to do what the government says, something along that line. So, render to Caesar is a phrase that we get means Pay your taxes, do what the government says. The question, if that's a given, becomes, 
what is Caesar's and what is God's? Where do we draw the line between the two? I'm raising this this morning because I think that historically we find ourselves in times and place where it's going to be, if not critical today, in the ensuing months and years, it's going to be critical for us as Christians, as Christ's followers, to know where the line is between what Caesar may require and what God holds to Himself. I don't want to be in any way alarmist this morning. You know, the sun rose today and it'll rise tomorrow. And God's sovereignly in control of all things. And I don't want to stir, by the way, anyone emotionally this morning. Though emotions have a place in decisions we make clearly. Uh, What I want to encourage us to do as we spend a little bit of time here around the Scripture, but also as we go home this week and maybe in the coming weeks, is to see this perhaps as a slightly back burner issue that we need to prayerfully think about that we need to think hard-headed thinking, biblically informed thinking, and be able to draw lines in the sand for ourselves between what is Caesar's and what Caesar may require, that's civil government, and what God reserves to Himself. I think it's important now. I think it's going to grow in its importance very soon. It's already a front-burner issue for many people. Let me just start with a list just to put context in where we're at as a country right now, not only the country, but really the Western world. Uh, Hobby Lobby CEO and owner David Green said in reference to health care law, Obamacare, which requires employers of companies of 50 employees or more to provide in their health care coverage medications that either inadvertently or intentionally bring about abortions. They kill unborn children. David Green and his family are Christians, devotedly so. And by the way, if you look in the papers at Christmas and Easter, you'll see full-page ads from Hobby Lobby saying something about Jesus. He said this, We simply cannot abandon our religious beliefs to comply with this mandate. We are Christians and we run our business on Christian principles. The Greens at this point, they have told the government, we will not comply with this law. This is civil disobedience. You've made, you've passed a law, the Supreme Court has affirmed it, and we are not going to obey it. We are saying this is not Caesar's prerogative. Hobby Lobby, at this point, I think they're avoiding on a technicality uh, fines, but they'll face, at some point here in the near future, $1.3 million a day in fines, which is the fine times their number of employees. Now, as I understand it at this point, the Green family is willing to go down with the ships on this. And and consider what this means. 18,000 employees, 514 stores in 41 states, and a $3 billion a year business. And they've told Caesar, this is not your prerogative, and we will not render this to you. This is today. This is right now. This isn't make-believe in the future. Same-sex marriage, and by the way, you know the guys, I love everybody, seriously. I had a homosexual brother who died of AIDS. This isn't something that's far and distant to me. But the homosexual agenda is driving part of the decline of our country and the legal issues that we're going to face. 
Same-sex marriage as an issue is another one, just like health care, in which Christians are going to have to say, this is my line in the sand. This is what I'm willing to do. This is what I must not do. So in the state of New Mexico, there's a Christian photographer, a female, who was asked to shoot the pictures at a lesbian commitment ceremony. She refused on her Christian principles. She said, I don't believe this is what God affirms and I can't be part of this. She was fined by a civil rights board $7,000. That fine was upheld by the Court of Appeals in New Mexico. It's still in the court system today. But that's a Christian saying, Caesar may not make me comply with this. I will not obey this law. That's today. That's going on right now. The Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, said this to ABC News, From my perspective, this is really the latest civil rights issue, same-sex marriage. It is the question of whether or not American citizens are going to be treated with equal protection of the laws. So what the Bible calls immorality is now a civil rights issue to our federal government. And this is going to have repercussions for everyone. The U.S. Supreme Court, I believe in or by June, is going to make a ruling on Proposition 8 from the state of California in which by a proposition ballot, California several years ago said same-sex marriage is not allowed. That's not going to be a part of what we do in California. It was overturned by courts in California. It's before the Supreme Court today. Now, our federal government, which has, which passed the Defense of Marriage Act some years ago, is actually arguing against the federal legislation, DOMA, and for same-sex marriage on a civil rights basis issue. So, for instance, for this gal, this photographer who's in hot water in New Mexico, this could be you or I, depending on what your line in the sand is, on the ways in which you're willing or unwilling to affirm same-sex marriages. If the Supreme Court does with this what it did with abortion in 1973, every law in the country, the state law is saying we don't do same-sex marriage, they would be overturned. We could find ourselves this summer in a country that says same-sex marriage is a civil rights, constitutionally protected right of all citizens. And again, I'm just saying this is going to have repercussions on what we choose to do or believe we must or must not do. This is today. This isn't sometime later. In California right now, there's a law that's been passed. This is also being contested, as you can imagine, by Christian legal groups in the courts. But this law forbids counselors from suggesting to minors that homosexuality may not be the best lifestyle choice for them or there might be viable options for them coming out or avoiding that lifestyle. There's concern that military chaplains may be mandated to perform same-sex marriages, whether that fits with their understanding of the world or not. This is not, by the way, limited to the United States. You know, we talk about the states because it's where we live and we're also this big piece of the puzzle on what culture around the world looks like. But this isn't just the United States. In Canada, this is in the last week or two, the Canadian Supreme Court upheld a hate speech violation against a former homosexual in Canada who several years ago passed out flyers that were construed and probably were disrespectful to pedophiles and homosexuals. The Canadian Supreme Court said this violated Canadian hate speech legislation. 
by the Canadian court standard, the Bible is hate speech because of what it says about homosexuality. The Bible in Canada, though the Supreme Court did not state that, by their standard, the Bible is illegal as hate speech, or many of its passages are in Canada today. We've got a, a couple and, a, and their children in the United States right now, they're, they're here at least for now, from Germany. It's illegal to homeschool in Germany. We've got a lot of homeschoolers here. You know, in Germany, if you try to homeschool and you don't comply with government mandates, they take your children away and they fine you and they put you in jail. This couple here right now and their children are here under asylum laws, but again, our, uh, our legal system may ship them back to Germany, under which case it's certainly they'll lose their children and they'll be fined or go to jail. So this isn't just the United States. This is going on around the world. Our country in the West is, in my view, inarguably in a state of moral and spiritual decline. And short of a moral and spiritual revolution, sort of a return, a revival, we're going to see what's currently going on and it's going to increase and it's going to become more profound for all of us. So this is a time, I think, strategically for Christians where we need to know what is Caesar's and what is not? What may civil government require? And what may they not require of me as a Christian? And I say this, I hope I'm careful this morning. Again, I don't want to set off any bottle rockets, no unbridled enthusiasm or emotion. I'm really serious about this. When we don't comply with authority, it's a big deal. So we need to be on really solid ground when we do. And that's what I'm saying this morning. Biblically, we'll look at this. So, keep the emotions down. Look at the text. Look at the Scripture. What has God said? What's He require in either direction? And make our decisions based on that. If you have a study sheet, we'll start looking. And I'll breeze through because there's a lot to say and not a lot of time to say it in. John 19. When Jesus stands before the civil government of His day in the person of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor there in Judea, Jesus' life is on the line. And Pilate knows that this guy is not guilty of any criminal act, and I'd like to let him off. And he's looking for help. Jesus, help me help you. Give me something. Talk to me. And Jesus won't speak. And so Pilate says, don't you know that I have the power to execute you or to set you free? And Jesus' response is, the only power you have is from above. Ultimately, the power and the authority you have to do anything to me actually resides with my Father. Only secondarily does it reside with you. You have authority because it was given. But God the Son on earth, the Creator of the heavens and earth, says to Pilate, your authority, and it's real, and of course, under Pilate's authority in Rome, Jesus is crucified, but the authority you have has actually been delegated by God Himself. Civil authority, there, the Roman government, Jesus says, delegated authority, it's in place at God's pleasure. In Romans 13, and this is certainly the longest of the New Testament texts that deal with Christians' call to obey and respect civil government, Romans 13, verses 1-7. through Paul there says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. That's pretty black and white. Paul's not bringing the, the exceptions here. in here. That's pretty black and white. Towards the end of that passage at verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect, and honor to whom honor. Very clear. Governments exist by God's fiat. They have God's authority. If we rebel against government, generally, we're in rebellion against God. 1 Peter 2 says essentially the same thing. Peter there says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, the head of world governments at the time, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 17 there, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So, bottom line, just the norm. It's very clear. It's black and white clear. Christians are called to obey the government, the civil government. To render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Absolutely clear, this is the norm. Far and away. No problem with that at all. It's really important also to remember... Uh, the time and the place in which these texts were written, these weren't written under democracies, these texts. They weren't written under a republican form of government like we have today. These weren't written under benevolent leaders. Uh, these were written by Jews for whom being ruled by anyone but God Himself and God's Jewish representative was anathema. This is written by Jews. And it's written by Jews who are executed by the government they are telling other Christians to submit to in Peter and Paul. The same government that was responsible at the civil level for Jesus' own crucifixion, Paul and Peter say, submit to and obey. So, for us, we need to be really clear that the, the norm is that we obey the civil government. Really clear. This is not hard to figure out. The texts speak very, very clear to this. Having said that, it's not absolute. Let me go through a short list of some of the exceptions you'll find in the Bible and why they are there. That is, why under these conditions, giving Caesar what Caesar required was simply not an option. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar had ordered that all of his administrators bow to an idol. A tall statue set there on the plains of Babylon. And he required that when music was played, all of his administrators would show respect and submission to him by bowing and worshiping this idol. Well, he hears that there's these three Jewish youth that refuse to bow. So he graciously calls them into his court and says, hey guys, there's a problem. I heard that you didn't bow to my idol. And so I'm going to give you another chance. And when the music plays, bow down and worship my idol. Everything's okay. If you don't, I've got a pizza oven over here and you're for dessert or you're for the next meal. You're going to be in that oven burned up if you don't comply with my mandate. If you don't bow down and worship. Now I love these guys, chutzpah, 
as the Jews would say, because they say to the king this. They know their lives are on the line. They say, king, we don't even need to think about this. We don't need to go and pray. We don't need to consult with one another. They say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, either by life or by death, O king. But if not, if He doesn't deliver us, deliver our life here, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now for these Jewish young men, are they just thumbing their nose at Nebuchadnezzar? Do they just decide they're tired of life? What's at stake here for them? When Nebuchadnezzar says, worship this idol, why don't they? Why don't they just say this would be easy to do? We could just bow down, we're done. But if they did so, they would be breaking God's command, wouldn't they? So if we go back, if you were at walk through the Bible and we went up to Mount Sinai as we went around the, the Middle East there and God gave the laws, you remember what the first two laws were that these boys were committed to? Have no other gods before me and make no foreign gods, make no image of God, and bow down to no image of a God. So when they said to Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even need to think about this, it's because they knew what God required. This isn't an issue. Our hearts are set on obeying Yahweh, our God. And our God says, don't do what you just commanded. There's nothing to discuss. We're not doing it. No matter what it costs. If you go to the early church in Acts 4 and Acts 5, you see exactly the same thing, or pretty much the same thing. In Acts 4, Peter was used by God to heal a guy that was lame. And news gets out. The excitement's going to continue. So the Jewish leaders bring Peter and the apostles in and they say, hey guys, we don't want to hear any more about this Jesus. So don't you talk about Jesus around here. Peter says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter says, guys, listen. Kind of like the Jewish boys in Daniel 3. We don't have to think. We, we have to speak. He doesn't say why here, but we'll look at that in just a second. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the boys, they keep preaching in Jesus' name. And they're upsetting the Jewish leaders. And remember, these guys have civil authority also, not just religious. They're upsetting them again. So they bring them back in. They say, hey, maybe you didn't hear us the first time. We strictly charged you, Acts 5.27-29, not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. You've told us not to speak in Jesus' name, but to be silent would be to disobey God's command. Now, I'm not sure in Peter's mind at this point specifically what text or what command was on his mind, but I can get a couple. Matthew 28, you remember Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And with all the authority of the universe, I tell you, go and make disciples and teach them, baptize them, and teach them. That's what these guys are doing. Peter understands, I'm under command to God Himself in the person of Jesus to proclaim the truth of God in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no option here. There's nothing to pray about. There's nothing to consider. What you're requiring would make me disobey God Himself. Acts 1 verse 8 would be more the same. Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses when the holy spirit's given and what will you do you'll witness for me in jerusalem which is what they're doing 
and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So the apostles understand when civil government said in the, in the presence of the Jewish civil government, don't teach in Jesus' name, they said, no, that's not an option. That's a requirement civil government is making that we cannot, must not, will not comply with. If you boil this down, the biblical argument for civil disobedience is this simply. If government, if Caesar, requires what God prohibits, or prohibits what God requires, and this is important, you must not obey. This isn't a hard call. This isn't a decision to be made or shouldn't be for Christians. If it's clear biblically, black and white, if civil government, if Caesar requires what God forbids, or forbids what God requires, we must not obey. If we obey, we are saying Caesar is higher than Jesus Christ. Civil government is over God's authority. Remember again, Jesus' line in John's Gospel, all authority ultimately is from God Himself. So if there's any lesser authority that tells us to disobey the ultimate authority, we must not comply. We're called to civil disobedience in those cases. If you look at the early history of the church, Christians read plenty, read the early church fathers, just the histories, Eusebius and others. The early church, the Christians were told often, worship Caesar as God. That coin Jesus held up, it said Caesar was God. He was divine. And so Christians were told, worship Caesar or else. And so Christians were persecuted, they were imprisoned, their possessions were sealed, were stolen, seized. And they were martyred because they refused to do exactly the same thing that the Jewish boys in Daniel 3. They said, we can't worship anyone or anything but God. If you go to the days of the Reformation, the Reformers, again, uh, bloody, difficult, times reformers were martyred because they said we won't stop printing the bible we won't stop distributing god's word because they understood they were under mandate the same mandate the apostles were to go and make disciples to spread the truth of god's word if you looked at christians who hid jews in world war ii germany they understood that hitler's requirement that all jews be turned in was not a higher or greater command than God's command to them to love their neighbors. And so they disobeyed the civil government. So we need to understand, if it's black and white clear that Caesar's requiring what is only God's prerogative, if Caesar's claiming something that belongs to God, this isn't a question to figure out. We, we say no. We follow Jesus. If there's a question of one or the other, we follow and we must follow Christ. Now, I say I don't want to stir emotions on this because emotions would not be helpful for you or I if, if we make a decision and we pay the price. If we're sitting in prison because of the emotions of the moment, won't count much, will it? We need to be hard-headed, biblically informed, Christ-honoring in our decisions on this. We need the clarity and the boldness of Martin Luther. I'm, I was thrilled that we started with uh, the song we did this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know, Luther's story and parts of it are just, they are emotionally 
compelling in a totally positive, totally good way. So Luther, if you remember, former Catholic priest, read his Bible, wow, salvation is by faith, turns his life upside down, starts turning Europe upside down. Luther writes a series of tracts and books which the Roman Catholic Pope says are heretical. They remember in those days, Pope's life and death was in the Pope's hand. If you crossed him, you would be executed because basically the Roman Catholic Church ran the empires of the world. So Martin Luther finds himself before Emperor Charles V at Worms, the city... Would you like to live there? The city of Worms? Worms? The city of Worms. And this is the deal. Uh, Luther, are you willing to recant what you've said? And you see, the emperor, he's looking for a yes or no answer. There's no wiggle room. The answer is yes or no. And Luther gets it that my life depends on this answer. Everything's at stake for him here. So he says this. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My decisions are based on the truth of the Word of God. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. The Scriptures, God's truth, is what informs my decisions. Thus I cannot, I cannot, I cannot, and I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Some versions of this add Luther saying, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. You see, Luther got it. I'm ultimately answerable to a higher authority than the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope or the Emperor. You know, the seats of power on earth and Luther Luther says, no, I can't get there because I answer ultimately to a higher power. We must follow Luther's Example, if we find ourselves in a similar situation, Caesar is requiring what is not Caesar's to require, then we must practice what we call civil disobedience. I'm going to pass over a couple of passages if you happen to have your study sheet. Jesus is the ultimate authority. And and again, that's why if a lesser authority requires that we disobey the ultimate authority, this isn't a hard call. We don't obey the lesser authority. We obey the greater authority. You can see there on your study sheet, Matthew 28, 18. The resurrected Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Not just as God, but as the Son of Man who'd come down and through His death and resurrection reclaimed the earth for God. He says, all authority is mine. And that's the authority that we ultimately live under. Civil government is under Christ's authority. So if there's a disagreement between the two, there's no question which we obey. Let me uh, point four on your study sheet there. There's another set of principles related to civil disobedience. And they're philosophic and they're legal. And so just go back for a moment to the inception of the country you and I live in today. For some rebellion against King George in the American Revolution was predicated on a biblical principle just like Martin Luther or just like Daniel 3. And that lay in the issuance of the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act required that every official organ of government or local locales and churches stamp 
their official paperwork with the king's stamp and pay a tax for the privilege. Now, Christians in the United States, at that time the colonies, they understood that through the Stamp Act, King George was saying he was the head of every church in the American colonies. Remember, he's already the head of the Church of England. He now, through the Stamp Act, is saying he holds rights, he rules the churches in the colonies. Well, for many Christians, they said uh, he's just crossed the line about what Caesar may require. The king is not the head of the church. Here, or in any of our churches, he's not it. So we will not comply with the Stamp Act. And that fomented the willingness to rebel against Great Britain for many Christians. So that would follow the biblical principle we're already talking about. But also, secondarily, on philosophical and legal grounds, if you read the Declaration of Independence, you'll see both of these as the rationale for the rebellion of the colonies against Great Britain, philosophical, primarily philosophical and legal. On the philosophical grounds, the founders said that King George's actions violated the very purpose of government as they understood it. When you read life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the founders said that's the rationale for legitimate government. That legitimate government is born by people who assent to that government, that governance, and that governance and the civil authority is there to promote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The founders said on philosophical grounds, they didn't just say we might or we have the right to, they said we have the duty to rebel against this civil government philosophically. Philosophically. They also said legally. They said that the king's edicts and actions were themselves illegal according to British law. And that not, it was, this wasn't just taxation without representation. This was one issue after another after another. They said the king's actions against us are themselves illegal by British law. So they said, most of the founders, the rationale in the Declar Declaration of Independence is primarily philosophical and legal. And that's what brought our country about. By the way, if you read British history, uh, Charles I was executed, he was decapitated in 1649 for almost exactly this same reasoning. The House of Lords and the House of Commons said Charles I was actually guilty of treason against the country because he was trying to usurp authority that wasn't his. And he was, he was executed for his efforts. So it's a similar rationale that brought about the colonists' willingness to rebel against King George III. Today, these are emotional hot-button issues. Gun legislation in the courts and in the legislation and in the, the states today. There's a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. And so what constitutes legitimate governance legally with that in place. How big a magazine may I have? What kind of rifle may I have or may I not have? This is going to be argued around the country. Just legislation related to guns. Legally and philosophically. Uh, Health care, Obamacare. You know, it's been upheld by the Supreme Court. It, it sailed through the houses. It's the law of the land. But ask yourself the question, if you're an employer, 
and your conscience says that abortion is against the laws of God, what would you do as an employer if Caesar says you must provide abortifacients to your female employees? Are you going to comply? How far can Caesar, can civil government go? These are issues on the plate today. And we'll see where they go. But just to say, these are things that Christians will be interacting with. On the philosophic and legal exceptions to obeying government, the governments that exist by God's decree, you've got to be really careful. I had lunch with a brother in church here just a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about this issue. On philosophical and legal grounds, you've got to be really careful. Because those tend not to be as black and white as the biblical exceptions. We get those. Those, are, those tend to be very clear. These are much fuzzier. And I just think you've got to be a lot more careful if you're going to say on philosophical or legal grounds we're practicing civil disobedience. I just say make sure that between you and the Lord, biblically informed, hard-headed thinking, in the cool moments of the day, not when our emotions are lit up, that you know that you're saying on these grounds I must disobey civil government. Be careful with that. If you find yourself, and, and uh, I think there's a good chance that many of us in this room may find ourselves uh, practicing civil disobedience in the future, near or not so near, we have to go into this armed with the readiness and the willingness to suffer for that civil disobedience, to pay the consequences if we say no to Caesar, Caesar's tax, whatever that may look like. You know, in Daniel 3, those Jewish young men, they were thrown into the furnace. When they said, no, we won't bow, they didn't know what God would do. They were thrown into the furnace. God did deliver them, but they didn't know that ahead of time. In Acts 5, the apostles were beaten for saying to the Jewish governance, we must obey God rather than you. But listen to their response. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. Remember, Jesus had told His disciples, if they diss Me, they'll diss you. And so when they were abused for Jesus' name, they understood this is a reflection that we belong to our Master. This is what Jesus said would happen. By the way, my wife's Sunday school class had a series of stickers printed. And the stickers said, winners, not whiners. I know a lot of Christians, and I know a lot of whiners. Christian whiners. And I bring this up in this context. If we take a stand for Christ and we pay a price, a penalty, a consequence, don't be a whiner. These guys were beaten and they go away rejoicing. If we're identified with Christ because we must practice civil disobedience, don't be a whiner. Take it and honor God in the doing. I'm not saying don't avoid it if it's avoidable, but if that's the cost of obedience, don't be a whiner. Rejoice that you're associated with Christ in following and obeying Him. Paul said in Acts 21, he's being warned, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem... The Holy Spirit says you're going to be tied up and imprisoned. And He says to them, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. 
He says to them, guys, you don't get it. That's not an issue for me. That's not a thing to avoid imprisonment or chains or death. I'm ready to lay my life down today if that's what God requires of me for faithfulness. And we need to have that same mindset. In Hebrews 10, the writer there says to Christians, you joyfully accepted the plunder or the seizure of your property. Civil government took what they had. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious. This is a good thing in the sight of God. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. What was Jesus guilty of? Nothing. Did He suffer? Absolutely. And Peter says, that's our example. To follow Jesus. Revelation, if you think about the last book of the Bible, where is it written from? An island. Why is John the Apostle there? For faithfulness to the Word of God. He's banished on a little island. He's not even in a regular prison. You know, you read in Revelation 2 to the church of Smyrna, Jesus says, uh, don't fear what you're about to suffer. These are His followers in jail for His name and His cause. And He doesn't say, I'm, I'm getting you out. He says, be faithful to death and I'll give you the crown of life. Guys, you know, we live in a very blessed country. We've got a great, rich Christian heritage. And this is all, this is great. We rejoice in this even today. Though we see the balance of the tide turning. And we see that probably we're headed into stormier weather to come for sure. But we're thankful for what God's done in the past. We just want to be clear-headed that when those times or those issues come up in which we realize our government is requiring what only God may, that we're ready to say, I am not first and foremost an American. And by the way, you know God is not an American, right? God is not an American. Yeah. And the United States is not in biblical prophecy, not by name anyway. That ultimately, we're short-timers here and sort of winding down. Our longer view, Paul says in Philippians, we are citizens of heaven. We're glad that we're, we live in America. I'm thrilled with the time and the place I live. Absolutely thankful. God is not an American, and my final allegiance is not as an American. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm on loan. I'm on mission. I'm on assignment as an ambassador on planet Earth. That's my higher calling. I'm not first and foremost an American. And I am bound by the bonds of the crucified Christ with Christians in oppressed or communist countries more closely than I am with Americans whom I share the same nationality with. So we're thankful for the place we live. But we are Christians first. We are Christians first. And ultimately, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our God and of our Christ. That's Revelation 11.15. Let me wind down here. Three things to do just to think about. You know the time to get ready for trouble? It's before trouble gets here. The time to make your mind up on these things is before the issue arises. You know, Proverbs says that the wise man sees trouble coming and he gets out of the way. He makes provision for it. The fool proceeds and is punished. We don't want to be stupid. We don't want to be foolish. We want to be hard-headed, biblically informed thinkers committed to Christ's name, His cause, His glory, 
And out of that mindset and heart and spirit, come to grips with what this is going to look like for us. So first, pray. <clears throat> you know, when you tell Christians to pray, you get the yawn. That's the response. Yawn, really? That? You know, I fall asleep when I pray. I don't see anything happen when I pray. You know, when Paul wrote Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, uh, Timothy's Paul's protege. He's in Ephesus. Paul's telling him, hey, this is what I want you to do in that church. This is what God wants for His church there in Ephesus. And when he starts chapter 2, he's talking about the church specific. This is what you do. And what's the first thing he says? First of all then, I urge. I don't just suggest. I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The first thing Paul says for the church here, pray. Pray. And he says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This goes right to civil government. Paul says the church should be praying. Not last thing, first thing. And not just for ourselves and that I have a nice day and warm meal and soft bed. I'm to pray for civil government and civil authorities for the benefit of everyone. Myself and my family included. But I'm to pray. Guys, we don't pray enough. And this is not a legalistic thing. When we pray, we, we enter into what God is about and what God is doing. Paul says pray and pray for government. Pray for civil authorities. The second thing is civility and respect. You'll see a, a couple of incidents where you might say Jesus or Paul appear to be making what could be construed as disrespectful quips towards authorities. Jesus to one of the kings and Paul towards a high priest. Those aside, you'll always see, and those are questionable as to whether they're disrespectful. Those aside, you'll always see the Christian's response to civil government in the New Testament is civility and respect. That's the norm. This is another thing, by the way, when we get emotional, then we start saying stupid things. We do stupid things. So we don't want to get emotional on the front end. We should be very passionate about what God calls us to. We just don't want to be dumb because we're being led by the emotions of the moment. Christians often are the ones who are getting emotional and getting fired up and saying stupid things towards government towards the president or the governor or legislators guys the norm what we're called to is respect to whom respect is owed that's civil government we should not as christians be speaking disrespectfully of the president or his cabinet or our governor or legislators or mayors god says they're due respect and when we interact with them as christians we should do so respectfully with civility. There's a place for humor, by the way. There's a place for a lot of things to say here. But to simply be stupid in our disrespectful, emotionally charged and laden things that we say about government officials is simply wrong-headed and unbiblical. And we do not honor Christ when we do that. And the last thing is this. Draw your lines in the sand now. In Daniel 1, verse 8, you remember Daniel and his friends, these are young, sharp guys from Judah who are taken captives to Babylon. The, the Rome of their day. Sort of the, the city that's the epitome of all wickedness. 
civil and otherwise, in, in the Bible and in the history of the world. And that's where they've landed. And so they're coming in thinking, man, what's going to happen here? You know, what might Caesar, what might the king require? And so Daniel 1, verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. You know, I get to Babylon, probably not kosher food. So Daniel goes in and says, I am, I'm already resolved. The decision is made. I'm set. With Luther, I've stood and I've said, my conscience will not allow me to do otherwise. I'm resolved. I'm not going to disobey God's law for what I eat, what I put in my mouth. We need to be resolved ahead of the matter. You know, there are stories in Fox's book of martyrs of Christians who when faced with the option of basically recanting their faith or their life being spared, they, they recanted. In fact, there's one, uh, there's one British reformer who was told, recant or die. We found ourselves in Oxford a few years ago in this church where this trial had gone on. And, and you go out into the street and there's a statue there. And it's of these three guys. And one of them says, with the option, recant or die, he says, okay. And he signs. He signs. I recant. And then it's just days later, he comes back and he says, that was a mistake. He regrets it. See, he hadn't drawn the line in the sand. He, he didn't know where he was going when he got there. And so he says, well, okay, I'll sign. But then he thinks about it later and he realizes, what I'm doing is against my conscience. I'm violating God's will as I understand God's will. And so he goes back and he says, guys, by the way, I, I recant my recanting. I repent of my repentance. And he's burned at the stake. And when he is, he says, let the hand that signed that form, let it be the first to burn. Those are the kind of people we follow as Christians today. Guys, we've got to draw lines in the sand. I love our country. Pray for our government. Not looking for trouble. But guys, almost certainly trouble's coming to the church here. And that, in the long term, that won't be a bad thing. That'll be a good thing. Because God will use that. And He'll, he'll lift up Christians to speak of Christ more clearly than people are here in the church today. And He'll refine us. He'll bring about helpful change in our life. He'll cleanse us. He'll make us more like Himself. And we will shine a brighter light. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Christians shine like lights in a dark place. The darker it gets around us, the more ability Christians have to shine for Christ. And frankly, to take hits in Christ's name. Father, thanks that You are the ultimate authority and that You hold all life, all goodness in Your hand. Father, we live and move and have our being because of You, in You. God, we know that You're good. The ultimate demonstration of that was when You gave Your Son, Your only Son, in our place, bearing our penalty, our iniquities, our sin, in His body on the cross. Lord, thanks for His glorious resurrection and that we serve a risen Christ today. Lord, help us hold on to Jesus and His glory. Help us to make Him and His honor our goal. Lord, help us to be wisely involved in the culture, the country, and the time You've placed us so that we can honor You in the doing. And Lord, help us to know when Caesar, when civil government is requiring what You reserve to Yourself, Help us to have our minds made up ahead of time, Lord. 
Help us to honor you above and beyond all things. And Lord, we, we celebrate and we look forward to that day when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.